Well, do please turn back to the book of Esther, and we come at last to Esther chapter 6, page 413 in our church visitors' Bibles. Last time we put this book down, the plans had been laid on both sides, schemes put into place, and overnight, Haman, the enemy of the Jews, had had his famous gallows built. And there was just one thing left in his mind before he could go on his merry way to Esther's second banquet, and that was to get formal permission from the king to have Mordecai impaled on that huge spike. So let's see how that goes. Uh, Chapter 6 happens as the workmen are out on the streets building the gallows. As the nails and the banging is all taking place, the scene cuts to the king's bedroom in the citadel. On that very night, that very night, sleep fled from the king. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Terash, two of the king's officials who guarded the threshold and who sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the king said, What honor or greatness has been bestowed on Mordecai over this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing was done for him. So the king said, who is in court? And Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the spike that he'd prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, look, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man in whose honor the king delights? And Haman said in his heart, whose honor would the king delight in more than mine? So Haman said to the king, for the man in whose honor the king delights, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse that the king has ridden, on whose head a royal crown is set. Oh, and let the robes of the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let them dress the man in whose honor the king delights, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done for the man in whose honor the king delights. So the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you said, and do so to Mordecai the Judean, who sits in the king's gate. Do not drop a word of all that you've spoken. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him, mounted through the city square, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man in whose honor the king delights. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zerash and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise ones and his wife Zerash said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the seed of the Judeans, you will not prevail over him, but will surely fall before him. 
And while they were still speaking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast, which Esther had prepared. Well, I wonder how comfortable you are with God's sense of humor. Can you laugh at God's jokes? We have one little one who hates it when his parents or his big sisters laugh just in case we might be laughing at him and not with him. So how did you feel as we sung Psalm 2 earlier on? The Lord in heaven who laughs at the kings of earth as they rebel against his son. I think there have been times when that picture of a laughing God struck me as rather cold. I wanted God to be wringing his hands in pity. But in Esther chapter 6, we meet a God who is having fun. And it teaches us that when the Lord in heaven laughs, it is a good laughter. Proper belly laughter born out of a deep goodness and a deep love for his own. So we can lighten up, can't we, and trust him and enjoy the God we meet in this chapter. We put this book back on the shelf just before Christmas at the mother of all cliffhangers. The entire Jewish people had been condemned to genocide one year from now. And humanly speaking, their only hope hang in the hands of one young woman who had found her way to being queen consort to the most powerful man in the world. Two chapters back, Esther's own story reached its decisive moment when she threw in her lot with the people of God and pledged to risk everything to speak up for them in the center of all power. And yet Esther's courage did not turn the story around. Last time we saw her putting her plan into effect with incredible poise and patience and bravery, twisting the king around her little finger, spinning out the crucial moment until the timing was just right. And yet by the end of chapter five, it all seems to have backfired disastrously. Haman, the enemy of the Judeans, has had enough. And overnight, he's had this grotesque, five-story-high spike built in Susa so that in the morning he can have Mordecai, her uncle, hanged on it and make sure that the whole world sees his humiliation. Esther has played the long game, but time has run out, and she doesn't even know it yet. Chapter 6, though, at long last is the moment where everything begins to turn. Right in between Esther's two banquets, nestled in the center of a book, full of banquets, matching banquets, right at the heart comes another series of unfortunate events that neither Esther nor Mordecai could have ever planned. They have fasted and prayed and trusted the hidden God, and now... The hidden God works in hidden ways to do the impossible. Esther chapter 6, then, is a story of providence, of pride, and of pleasure in heaven. 
And it is absolutely beautiful, isn't it, to watch it all unfold? First, in verses 1 to 5, let's enjoy the hidden God's providence as God orders all things with beautiful timing. Now, for a book which studiously avoids mentioning God's name, we've seen a fair share of coincidences already, haven't we? But over this chapter and the next, that series of unfortunate events for Haman are going to reach their peak. And on their own, each one of these coincidences is entirely ordinary and believable, but you weave them together and it becomes like a chain of dominoes crashing down that nobody is able to stop. On that very night, just as everything seems to be spiraling out of control for Esther, on that very night, the king has trouble getting to sleep. I love the Hebrew idiom there, sleep fled from the king. It seems utterly random, but it makes you ask, why did sleep run away from him? I've got those YouTube clips in my head of sleepy cats getting startled out of their wits and leaping three feet into the air. It's as if God has just pinched sleep's tail or put a little cucumber down on the floor and it bolts and runs away for the night. And that is all it took. We think here is the most powerful empire in the world and Plans for a genocide are already in motion. The wheels are turning. It is going to take some extraordinary miracle to save the gospel. God says, nah, (laughs) watch this. And he keeps someone awake for one night. You see, this unseen God of Esther is actually doing something far more impressive than we realize. It's a salvation here as big as the Exodus his whole people, but there's no big spectacle. He does it by seamlessly weaving together the random events and genuine free choices of every human being into the story that he wants to tell. And that is a much more impressive feat, isn't it? It's what we call God's providence, his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. God is always doing it, ruling the universe through every random event and every free choice we make. And the beautiful thing here is that it is completely effortless for him, which I hope makes you realize that it is never, ever going to be remotely difficult for this God to answer your prayers. If he can do it like this, through keeping one man awake, he can do anything, can't he? If he doesn't, or if he delays, it's because he wants to tell a better story. He is the master storyteller. He could have rescued his people with some massive miracle weeks ago. Instead, Esther and Mordecai have had to go through all of this. Because God is the absolute master of comic timing. And he does all things well. He is going to do more than simply get them off the hook. And so tonight, the restless king doesn't call for a whiskey or a concubine. Tonight, 
he happens to call for the National Archives to be read. That is sure to send them to sleep. And it just so happens that they turn to the page where Mordecai saved his life from two plotting guards back in chapter 2. And finally, after all these years, overlooked Mordecai is going to get his rewards. The king is horrified to find out that nothing was done for him. It was a big deal in ancient Persia to reward loyalty. The archives are full of it. And who should walk into the outer court just then, verse 4, but Haman, his prime minister. He's been up late too, hasn't he? Ordering that massive spike to be built. And he is so eager to use it that he cannot wait any longer. And so here he is at this ungodly hour in the morning, so desperate to demand the death of the very man, the king has been lying in bed, wondering how to thank. There's nothing quite so fun as reading this story unfold for the first time, is there? I almost wanted to scream at the page here. You almost feel sorry for Haman. No, don't do it now. Don't ask him. It's terrible timing. Here is the most powerful official in the most powerful empire of the world. And it's all about to come crashing down because of one bad night for the king. You imagine he's going to walk in there and demand Mordecai's head straight away, and that will be the end of him, then and there. But God has even more fun. He has a better story to tell. So you see, this is out of everyone's control now, isn't it? The king, he can't sleep. His prime minister, our hero and heroine. But what no human being could ever control, the God of providence orchestrates with effortless beauty, which is the story of our whole salvation, isn't it? Here is a God who gives life to the dead, the helpless, who does what we could never do, whose son dies for us at just the right time while we were yet weak and full of sin. God orders all things with beautiful timing. So enjoy his providence. And then verses 6 to 9, let's laugh at the enemy's pride. Because sometimes God allows human egos to beautifully bloat. And Haman's pride is going to swell so much now that it bursts all by itself. The self-styled king of kings who never seems to decide anything in this book on his own. Have you noticed that? He asks Haman the question that's been troubling him. What should be done for the man in whose honor I delight? And then in verse 6, it's like our writer puts a stethoscope to Haman's heart. And he lets us hear exactly what's going on inside this is a man who is absolutely the center of his own world. And so it seems absolutely natural to Haman that the king must be talking about him. Why wouldn't the most powerful king in the world be up all night worrying about my glory? After all, it's all I ever think about. I wonder how many of us have made that embarrassing mistake before, assumed it's all been about us. There's a little Haman in most of us, isn't there? The center of our own worlds. And so for two long verses, it gets a lot of ink here, 
he allows himself to dream his wildest dreams. The one in whose honor the king delights. Now let me see. Notice all the repetition of that phrase. One writer says it's like he's swirling it around his mouth, like a fine wine, savoring the flattery. Now what you ask from the king of kings, that says a lot about you, doesn't it? What would you ask for? Haman already has all the power he could ever hope for. He's already rich. But there's one thing we've seen him craving right from the very start, and that is to be recognized. He wants every last person to bow down to him. And it's driven him insane that one Jewish man refused. And so what he suggests is kind of bizarre at first, isn't it? Let some of the king's own dirty laundry be brought and a horse that the king's own royal backside has perched on and let the most senior aristocrat in the empire dress him in that robe and parade him right through the city. Ooh, and let's even put a nice sparkly crown on the horse's head. But you see what he's asking for, don't you? He wants to be recognized as an equal to the king. He wants to share in all the status and the trappings and the glory that the king himself owns. It's just about the most he could ask for without outright treason. And so once again, this human court is like an inverted heaven, the one at the king's right hand who grasps for the throne, grasps for glory. And if God has never allowed the world to see that kind of bloated pride in us. I guess we should be very thankful, shouldn't we? Sometimes he allows human egos to bloat themselves so that it is all the more beautiful when he bursts them. Which brings us from providence and pride to pleasure. What we see in verses 10 to 14 is the true king of kings taking extraordinary pleasure in vindicating the one he delights to honor. God honors his own with a beautiful delight. And what a joy it is when the punchline finally comes. Hurry, take the robes and the horse and everything you've said and do it to Mordecai, your enemy, and don't drop a word of it. It's brilliant, isn't it? And so Haman discovers that he has been forced to dream his wildest dreams for the very man he wanted dead, the ancient blood enemy of his people. And the height of his pride becomes the depths of his humiliation. Can you imagine what it must have been like when Haman became the nobleman who has to cow down to Mordecai and parade him through the streets shouting his praises? Even Mordecai must have been dying inside, but it's great. And this man deserves every bit of it, doesn't he? If this is the moment that God has savored and held back and perfectly orchestrated with impossible comic timing, then it's showing us something really pleasing in God's character. He loves to poke fun at evil and pride. 
He loves to vindicate and lift up the ones who trust him. It brings him joy. So this moment, Mordecai exalted and honored is finally the great pivot in the story. It's not yet salvation for his people. It's not at all what Mordecai has been looking for. But notice what's happened here. In those two verses, verses 10 and 11, Haman and Mordecai have traded places entirely. Mordecai was walking around in rags, remember, identifying with his people in their grief, their sentence of death, whereas Haman had been given the king's signet ring and all of the honor of the empire. Now Mordecai wears the royal robes, and Haman goes home mourning, covering his head in rags. He has lived for his image, hasn't he? His reputation. And now all the world has seen that taken away. And so he's mourning the death of the only thing he ever really cared for. Because we don't find honor and glory in God's world. It turns out by lifting ourselves high, we find it by stooping low before the God of grace. If there's anything you and I are trying to make the center of our lives other than him, then one day we are going to go through the terrible pain of seeing that thing we most care about die before our eyes. And it'll be as though we're watching our own funeral. This man goes home mourning for himself. Mordecai never showed any sign of caring about his reputation. And so notice he goes back to work now in his normal place as if nothing's happened. But just like Esther earlier on in the book, Mordecai's given us a little picture of how God will turn the world upside down through his son. God loves to scatter the proud and to lift up the humble. Haman grasped for glory and dignity, equality with the king of kings. Mordecai let it all go to be with his people in the dust. And he was exalted and seated in the place of highest honor. It's the shape of the gospel, isn't it? prefiguring the great reversal of all things that begins when the king of glory comes into our world to die as a servant. And here in this book, this is the first of many, many more big reversals to come. In fact, from now on, the whole story will go into unwind. Reversal becomes the big theme, beginning with these two here, trading places. And it's Zerash, Haman's wife, who tells us why. Now, remember, that whole five-story-high spike weave was actually her idea. But now, all of a sudden, she's become a bit of a prophet. And it's not great news for Haman, is it? He wishes he'd said this earlier. If Mordecai, before whom you've begun to fall, is of the seed of the Judeans, you will not prevail over him, but will surely fall before him. It's as if watching these random events woven together, terrible alarm bells have been triggered in their pagan minds. Thousands of years of history come flooding back. 
where a faithful God stood by his people. Think of how back in the Exodus days, the fear of Yahweh spread through all the Canaanites before Israel even entered the land so that there were pagans like Rahab who recognized that the only safe place to be was with the people he loved. Well, that's not been forgotten, has it? These Agagites, Haman and his wife, plotting the murder of God's people, they weren't motivated by a kind of blind hatred. Here's where we see explicitly that this was all about settling ancient scores. They know their history. This is a battle between ancient seeds. That phrase, the seed of the Judeans, it's loaded, isn't it, with covenant promises. Zerash sees the hand of the hidden God, the God who's meant to be missing from this book, working to protect the ones he loves, the ones he has promised to see through to the end, just as he always has done. And those who curse them, he will curse. They may have blown everything, the Israelites, here in exile, but God has not forsaken his promises. Now, Mordecai is someone whose honor the true king of kings delights in. And that is all that matters. And just like that, while they're still speaking, the king's men arrive at the door to take Haman away to Esther's second feast. And so suddenly, everything has spiraled out of his hands. No one saw it coming. Haman had it all, didn't he? The night before, he was confident enough to build that silly great big spike before he'd even asked the king. Before this night is up, he'll be hanging on it himself. It is so quick. Nobody knows the day or the hour, but it always comes. So as we close then, where does our security, our ultimate security come from? Obviously, it's not in reaching for greatness, in building up a name for ourselves or a reputation. In the end, there was only one thing that mattered here. Who is it that the king delights to honor? We serve a king of kings who isn't vain and capricious and unpredictable like this king, Ahasuerus. God's tells us who he is in his word, doesn't he? And he sticks by it for eternity. And this king of kings has spent all of eternity delighting in the honor of his son, Jesus, a son who didn't grasp for glory, but stood with the condemned. So I guess there was more belly laughter in heaven on Easter Sunday than anywhere else in all creation. When the father vindicated his son and glorified him, that was a joyful thing. And God popped the pride then, didn't he, of an enemy who was convinced he'd won. Our security rests in the joy of heaven. God loves to do this. Isn't that a beautiful thing? God is the kind of father who takes joy pride in seeing his children do well. It delights God to honor his son and honor his people. He has fun in bringing us to glory. 
to see us lifted up out of the dust of death and to do good by us. Now, we can't always see how he'll do that or what he'll ask us to face, but we can be sure that his plan is utterly beautiful. And one day, if we will humble ourselves and trust him, then we will laugh alongside his son with the God who did all things so very well. Well, let's bow our heads. Loving Heavenly Father, who does all things well, according to your own beautiful wisdom, we praise you for what we see in this little window into your heart, that there is mirth and happiness and goodness and justice in heaven. Who else, Lord, would dream up the reversal of all sorrow and all pride through the death of his own son on a cross? And so we thank you that our security rests in the loving joy of heaven itself. Help us, we pray, to humble ourselves and to trust the wisdom and grace of our Father that we might be lifted up with the Son in whom you delight. For we ask it in his name. Amen.